Wonderful. If you would um, stand and turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 10. And I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 23, 1 Kings 10, 23. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom which God had put into his heart. And they brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price. And a chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150, and by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of Syria. Chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. And he had 700 wives of princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And I'll pray. Lord, we're grateful again for your ministry to us, for your love for us. Thank you, God, for your heart that longs for us and is absolutely committed to us. Thank you for your great faithfulness, God, that we have sung about and which we truly want our lives, God, to reflect. We ask that you would again speak to us, minister to us, God, and that you would find us receptive and responsive to all that you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've had a number of people that um, after church last Sunday and already this Sunday have asked me just in response to the students from his hill that said they are needing financial assistance for next um, year, how much is a year at his hill? I don't know. Um, it is on our website. I know it is less than 15,000. Is it 14, Michael? 13.3. There you go. What a bargain. Um, and so that's the answer. And so that um, one semester, would the first semester is a little less than half. The second semester is a little more than half because it's, it's a longer semester. All right, we're finishing up here now, pretty close to it, um, on the life of Solomon here in 1 Kings. And it started out so well. This is one of those tragic stories in the Bible where a man starts out well and does not finish well. And Solomon, because he was such a, um, just so um, blessed by God, glorified by God, the ending is all the more tragic, which is the same for you and I. There's a direct application to that. As I said last Sunday, no one has ever been more glorified on this planet 
than you and I. We have been more blessed, more glorified than even Solomon because the one who is the glory of God has taken up residence in us as we have placed our faith in Christ. And so when a believer turns away from God, walks away from the faith, it is actually more tragic than what we see here with Solomon. And so Solomon, we begin in verse 23 where we're getting to the summary of his life now. And we're told that he became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, which is exactly what God promised him back in chapter 3. So there's no problem with this. It's God's fulfillment of what he had said. He has become greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Now, I made the big point last week, and I just said it already, that, that this is about God pouring out his glory upon a man. It is not about the man, it is about God. And the one job description of Solomon at this time is to deflect. It is not to take credit, it is not to own what God has done, but to give God the credit for what God has done. It is to glorify God. If you'll just hold your finger here and flip over to Isaiah 60, there is a fascinating parallel here, and it's drawing from the life of Solomon and showing us that he was to be, was basically functioning as a type of Christ at this time. Isaiah chapter 60. And it begins and says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is what was happening in the days of Solomon, and God is saying it is going to happen again for Israel, and it will be when Christ is, is seated as the king of Israel. In verse 5, it says, Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will return to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, and now all those from Sheba, we looked at that last week, the queen of Sheba will come. So again, Solomon is a type of Christ and what is going to be repeated during his kingdom. In the last part of verse 9 of Isaiah 60, For the name of, your, of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has glorified you. And foreigners will build up the walls, and their kings will minister to you. In verse 19, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. And your God for your glory. This is what Revelation speaks of at the end of the book of Revelation. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. So what God is doing through Solomon is meant to point to Jesus. Just as what God has done in our lives is meant to point to Jesus. It is not complicated. And so then back to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24. The earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his gift, 
articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. How much is so much? Look at chapter chapter 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now, don't get all hung up on 666. Um, This is not a hidden reference to the Antichrist. We're just being told that in one year's time, which was a typical year, 666 talents of gold came in. How much is a talent? 75 pounds. How many, now, I, I, would, I may be wrong here, and I probably am, but 16 ounces to a pound, I think that's the same with gold, I don't know, but that would mean there are, um, this is 50,000 pounds of gold. And at $2,000 an ounce, that is $1.6 trillion that is coming into this country every year by simple gift. Now, if we had any country today had this kind of money coming in, there would be no reason for any taxation whatsoever. Some historians believe that Solomon exempted only Judah from taxation, that he taxed all the other tribes. He didn't need to tax any of them, but he he chose to exempt Judah and tax the other nations, which was totally uncalled for because of so much money that was coming in. So that's why, verse 26, we see a shift in the verbs. So if you noted in verse 23, 24, and 25, the verbs are all passive. In that Solomon, this is coming to him. He is receiving these things. He is doing nothing. It is simply the blessing of God. But now it changes in verse 26. Now, Solomon gathered chariots. See, this is a direct contrast to what the previous verses were. Now this is Solomon's activity, not God's activity. Verse 27, the king made silver as common as stones. Now we all know, those of us that pay taxes, that there's only two ways that a country can raise, that a a government can raise money. One is by taxation and the other is just by printing it. And we're doing both in this country. They didn't have printing presses in Solomon's day. So the way that Solomon multiplied silver and gold was by taxation. He is not satisfied with what God is doing. Verse 28, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. Chapter 11, Solomon loved many foreign women. How many? 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, God has spoken to this. Look over to Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Deuteronomy 17, 16. You recall that I made the point in when Solomon had his prayer of dedication for the temple that he quoted extensively from Deuteronomy 28. Clearly, he has memorized that chapter of Scripture. So that tells me he knew Deuteronomy 17 as well. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. Moreover, he shall not, this is speaking of the king, the king shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. 
nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So three things that God clearly prohibited the king from doing. Cannot multiply wives, cannot multiply horses, especially from Egypt, and cannot multiply silver and gold, and he doesn't care. He has caved on all three of these. He has clearly rejected the word of God, which he knows to be true. This is bad. Now, some lessons from the life of Solomon. Number one lesson. Look at chapter 11 again, beginning in verse 1. Solomon loved many foreign women. The end of verse 2. Solomon held fast to these in love. How many women? A thousand. And he what? He loved them. Go figure. Really? That's what the text says. He loved them. He held fast to them in love. Oh, my. This would be if, if I had a time machine and I could set it for any time in the past, I would set it for this date. Wouldn't you? And I'd say, Solomon, what are you thinking? And he'd go, excuse me, where are you from? And I go, I'm from Texas from 2023. And he goes, oh, I understand. Let me explain this to you in your language. I love them. <laughs> and one of them walks by. And she's got a number on, 336. Doesn't even know her name. 336. And I go, Solomon, you don't need, oh, but Charlie, I love 336. Have you heard the song I've written to 336? And then another one comes by, 525, oh, 525, oh, my word, 525. You don't even know her name. Oh, every one of them. Obviously, I'm doing my Texas thing. I'm exaggerating here. But here, the point is, I can't comprehend, as a Westerner living in the 21st century, how you can love a thousand women. But Solomon would have said, this is, Charlie, you know this. In the 21st century, the basis for getting married is love. You are in love with each other. Right? And I love them. So what's the problem? Crickets. Silence. Because you see, if the basis for getting married is love, and Solomon loved them all, then we've got no problem. What can we say? How can we criticize him? So here's the first lesson. You can love the wrong person. And the basis for getting married, newsflash, is not love. Now that's real hard for us to hear as Westerners who have been brainwashed by all the stuff we've seen in the media since we were little kids. It's all about love. It's all about the romance. And as long as you're in love, that's all that matters. I'm still looking for that verse in the Bible. You can love the wrong person. If you have fallen in love with an unbeliever, Scripture has already spoken to this. And said, you cannot marry that person. Your heart is wrong. 
If you are married and you have fallen in love with another person, Scripture has already spoken to that. You are wrong, and your heart is in the wrong place. You can love the wrong person. Well, it doesn't seem, it just seems too clinical and too sterile to say that you get married not out of love, but just out of the will of God. Remember what love is about. It is not about me. It is about the other person. We had a student that came to his hill years ago from India. Sweet little girl, name of Mary. And um, this is before cell phones, and we had a pay phone just outside the dining room there at his hill. And so whenever anybody got a phone call, especially from overseas, it was a big deal. So one evening the phone rang and somebody went, came back and they said, Mary, you've got a call. And so she came back and everybody was obviously very interested. You know, phone call from home. And she, and she said, is everything? Oh, yeah, everything's fine. Well, what, what happened? Well, I'm engaged. <laughs> You're engaged? Yeah, yeah, my parents just wanted to call me and tell me I'm engaged. And um, that's interesting. And so we had an interesting conversation around the table about that. And, you know, you've never met him. No, I've never seen him. Um, and so then a few weeks go by, another phone call. She comes back to the table. Everything okay? Oh, yeah, everything's fine. I am no longer engaged. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my parents said no. I'm no longer engaged. Another, I kid you not, this happened three or four times. Phone call, I'm engaged. Phone call, not engaged. And we were just going, wow. And then one day... Um, she got the news that one of these fellows that she had not been engaged to, um, but he was interested, she was engaged to someone. This guy was from India, living out in California, and he flew in, and, um, and she hid. And she somehow heard that he was coming, and so she locked herself into one of the rooms, and, um, and he gets out of his car, and I went over to, to introduce myself to him, and, and he said, I'm here to, to meet Mary. And I said, okay. And I said, she's locked herself in a room, but let me go see if she'll come out. And so I went over there, knocked on her door, and she peeked open a little bit. And I said, Mary, his name was John. I said, John's here, and he, he wants to meet you. And she said, send him away. And, uh, and, uh, and she, I cannot see him. And I go, why not? I said, and she goes, I am engaged. This is not correct. I cannot see him. I'm engaged. And so she slammed the door. And so I went over to her and I said, John, I'm really sorry, but she's engaged and she won't see you. And he goes, he goes I've never met her. The only thing, I've only seen a photo, and he's got this little bitty like passport-sized photo. This is all I've ever seen, and God has told me this is the one. And I go, well, you and God need to talk some more, buddy, because <laughs> she's not coming out of the room. And so he got back in his rental car and flew back to California. He wasn't there more than 10 minutes. Well, he got a hold of his parents, and he said, whatever it takes, you get her unengaged to who she's engaged to and engaged to me. And the parents did. And, he, and all while this is going on, this is what we're asking this girl, is how can you love someone? that you have never met? And her answer was just, just, she just says, I will love him. It's like, why would you ask that question? 
I will love him. And the next time he showed up, they're engaged. And so she had her sari on, and she was sitting in the lounge of the office waiting for him. And I looked out my office window, and I see him get out of his car. This time he's got balloons and flowers. <laughs> and all the, 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 the office lounge is packed full of girls, and they're all, you know. And, so I ran them all away, and I brought him in, and I got to introduce this couple who are engaged who have never laid eyes on each other. Wow, it was pretty neat. And it was clear they loved each other. Not like how we view romance, but they had determined to choose to love each other. Every, they say that the brain does not finish developing until around 25. Isn't that right, Rob? Some, or later? For men, yeah, yeah. And so every year after 25 that a man waits to get married, the more cautious he becomes. I fall in that category. I've always been pretty cautious, and I didn't get married till 28. And so it was a very hard decision. I knew I loved Patsy and I knew she loved me, but we would both tell you it was not romantic kind of love. It just wasn't, we, did, we, and it, it, we struggled. She was 30 when we got married, I was 28, and we really struggled with that we didn't fit in our hearts what we had seen on TV and read in books our entire lives. We were not in, how we described it, we were not in love with being in love. But I knew I loved her, and I knew she loved me. But we were not in love with being in love. And it really troubled me that I could not feel all this romance. And it helped me so much when I did Ernest Stellsworth's funeral, and I heard Stella say that on like their 60th anniversary, he said, well, I'll drop you off and you can buy some flowers if you want. I'll pay for it. <laughs> I thought, they lived 60 years together and that's the most romantic the man's ever been. <laughs> so I approached everyone who knew me and Patsy. My mom, my dad, my siblings, everybody that knew us both. And said, what do you think? Am I about to make the biggest mistake of my life? Or is this right? And the one that helped me the most was not my dad, because he said, Charlie, that woman can plant beans. <laughs> I kid you not. He helped her plant, the, she helped him plant the garden one time. I have never seen anybody plant beans like that woman can plant beans. <laughs> you gotta marry that woman. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I have all that spiritual help really came along. But I asked the director at his hill, Patsy happened to be walking by, and he put his arm across my shoulder and he said, Charlie, for a woman like that to want to marry a guy like you, it has got to be the will of God. <laughs> and it really helped me. My, my point with all this is that Solomon himself said in Proverbs 28, 26, the one who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Now, if that doesn't 
gut romanticism, I don't know what does. Because romanticism is you are simply trusting your heart. And the last thing you do when you are romantically in love is confer with those who know you best. Because you really don't want to know. Your heart has already told you what's right. How sad. The basis for marriage, as in all decisions, is the will of God. Not love. Not romance. Not self-fulfillment. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, the body is for the Lord. You are not your own. You have been purchased with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. In 1 Corinthians 11, Christ is the head of each person. And we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 1 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will all give an account for everything we did, every word, every thought, every decision. And certainly that includes marriage. And I don't think it's going to pass muster when God says, why did you get married? Why did you marry that? Because I was in love. Where did I fit into that? Did you one time ask me my will? Well, no, God, I figured if I was in love, it had to be your will. Figured wrong. Every single decision in life should be a response to what the Lord wills for us. He died for all, 2 Corinthians 5.15, that they should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And it goes without saying that when Paul said he was a bondservant of Christ, he never intended that we think that he was uniquely a bondservant of Christ. And bondservants do not have their own will. We die to our will. What is your will, O Lord? I've been reading a book this summer that one of our guest speakers, a friend of mine um, from seminary, recommended. And I don't even remember, I've got the copy of it over here. But um, it's about six myths concerning sexuality. Six myths concerning sexuality. And one of those is the myth of romance. Here are some quotes from that book. We come to one person and we basically ask them to give us what an entire village used to provide. Belonging, identity, continuity. We demand transcendence and mystery and all, all from one person. In other words, we want to marry a savior. The more tightly we hold to the story of romance, the less likely it seems that any actual living, breathing person can hold up under the weight of expectations put on them by that story. Right? If you get married out of romance, you are putting an impossible set of expectations on another person. Who can stand up under the weight of that? We ask the question, what is marriage for? The answers provided give no reason to restrict marriage to a man and a woman. 
We Christians should question our own consistency if we find ourselves espousing a view of heterosexual marriage that basically embodies the myths of individualism and romance while rejecting same-sex marriage that embodies those two stories much more fully and logically. What is he saying? occurred to me years ago, and I, just, and I appreciated these statements because they just confirmed what I've been thinking for years. If love is the sole basis for getting married, as Christians we have painted ourselves into a major corner, big problem, because you have no basis. If love is the basis for getting married, you have no basis for saying to two women or two men they can't get married when they're in love. That's what this author is saying as well. Has it occurred to us, we are incompatible with God? Because we are sinners and selfish and self-absorbed, we are inconvenient to God. And yet... He gave himself fully for us and to us. And that is why the Christian vision of marriage involves the total commitment of each spouse to the other. Christian marriage is not sustained by compatibility. Again, why do we get, because we're so compatible. Compatibility is a good thing. But it is, marriage is not sustained by compatibility. It is sustained by being rooted in God's empowering grace to love my spouse the way that God loves me. Augustine said, You have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. It is God alone who can complete us. God alone who can bear the weight of being our ultimate love. The heart's hunger is infinite, which is why it will ultimately be disappointed with anything merely finite. What a great insight. The hunger of the heart is never going to be satisfied by marriage. It can only be satisfied by God. And if we're thinking marriage is going to satisfy our hearts, we're going to be really disappointed. God never intended that marriage satisfy the deepest longings of our lives. That is something only the infinite God can do because the hunger is infinite that is in us. You ever wonder, I have, I'm sure you have, why did, does God not just come out and hammer polygamy? Why does he just say it's wrong? Because there's no verse in the Bible that says polygamy is wrong. But it, it has to be. 700 wives, 300 concubines. I don't care if you're in love, it's still wrong. But God doesn't say that. A student one time at one of our Sister Torchbearer Schools asked a guest speaker, who's quite the scholar, what is wrong with polygamy? And the guest speaker said, one thing, with every wife you take, you get a mother-in-law. 
the student, I know that guest speaker, and I know he was being funny. The student didn't see the humor, so he thought, he thought the guest speaker was being serious. The only other problem is, you know, I, oh my word, I just laughed. <laughs> Why is it never explicitly condemned? Why did God not speak against polygamy in the life of David, a man after God's own heart? Silence, it would appear. But I would respond, God did speak. We know when I just read earlier from Deuteronomy 17, the king shall not multiply wives for himself. That's pretty clear. But when it comes to marriage, sexuality, singleness, divorce even, homosexuality, each of these topics, when you read in the New Testament, and those topics are brought up by Paul, every time he says, God's already spoken to this in Genesis 1 and 2. And so, go check Homosexuality, Romans chapter 1, Paul says that they know God. And then at the end of the chapter, they deny the ordinance of God. People who are unbelievers. But they know from creation, from their own conscience, what God has said. It is written in creation. When it comes to marriage between one man and one woman, God spoke to this in Genesis chapter 2. For this cause, a man shall leave his parents and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. He spoke to that. When it comes to male headship in the family, God spoke to this in creation. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When it comes to marriage being permanent and is never to be dissolved, Jesus says God spoke to this. Matthew chapter 19, God has already spoken to this in creation. And so, yes, there is no verse that says polygamy is sin. But the creation of God, the creation design of God has told us what God's will is. What we need to not forget as Christians is that God has two ways of speaking. He speaks through his word and he speaks through his creation. And God created marriage. One man, one woman. It's been observed there are only two unions, two marriages in all the Bible that we can say God did it. Adam and Eve and Isaac and Rebekah. And in both instances, one man for one woman. So why doesn't God condemn it? Some things God lets the actions themselves be their judgment. God lets what we do reap its own consequences. And it is, it is not God stepping into the process, but it's God just letting the process go its natural way. This is again what we see in Romans chapter 1. When people reject God, God will just let the process go its natural way. He will take his hands off and just let Nature take its course, as it were. This is what A.W. Tozer called the law of the harvest that God has built into the fabric of creation. And if I live according to the design of God, then I will know the good of God. 
And if I do not live according to the design of God, then I will reap the consequences of my own choices, and it is not God punishing me. It is simply living out the consequences of my choices. God's judgment is in the consequences of not living according to his creation design. God hasn't spoken against sex reassignment surgery. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you cannot change your sex. But the creation ordinance tells us God determines sexuality. And there are only two, male and female. That's what the creation ordinance says. So yes, there is no verse in the Bible that says that a man cannot change his sex to female or vice versa. But God has spoken to this in his actions, in his creation of this world. We know that polygamy is wrong by simply looking at the practical outcome of it. Again, this is maybe an issue that we think doesn't even pertain to us today. Um, And largely it does not, though there are millions and millions of people on the planet today that practice polygamy. It is still part and parcel with Islam, their culture, their religion, and it is still being practiced by many Mormons today, even in this country. Think about the practical, um, the practical outcome of polygamy. In Solomon's instance, Solomon's case, 1,000 women are being treated as property, as conquest, not as helpmeets, not as equals. This is the degrading of women. I have a friend who has a bit of a ministry that's just kind of fallen in his lap where he's um, conversing on the internet with people around the world from different cultures and religions. And he was talking to a Muslim woman and just asked her, what do you think about being one of four? Because in Islam, you can marry up to four women. And this Muslim woman said, I don't like it. And so my friend said, why not? And she said, because I want to be the only one. And see, that's in the hearts of all of us. Thousand women, they're being treated as less than equal. This is the degrading of women. And by the way, it does not matter if they gave their free consent. They are still being treated as less than the one, the cherished one. What about their children? There's no question that Solomon provided for every one of those children and provided well for them. Every need was met physically. But there's no foundation of family. There's no core identity. He would have bred into those children uncertainty, confusion, and perpetrated in the lives of his sons and his daughters the same low view of women. There's the practical aspect that by marrying, taking off the market, as it were, a thousand women, there are 999 men out there who cannot get married because of what Solomon did. He robbed them. 
He defrauded them. What is the remedy in a society where polygamy is commonly practiced? Because it doesn't work mathematically. But if every man is taking just four wives, but God has created there be one woman for one man, and that is always the birth rate, then what is the practical consequence of polygamy? War. Because when that goes on, and perpetrates generation after generation, you have way too many men out there with no women. And this is one of the reasons that countries that have, been, that have practiced polygamy for hundreds of years are warring nations. Because they've got to do something with the problem of all these single men. And the wars accomplish two things. Number one, it reduces the single male population. And secondly, it gives them the opportunity to steal women out of other cultures because they don't have enough in their own culture. 20 years ago, I heard that China was running into this problem because of their one-child policy. And the people of China were not accepting female babies. And so they were aborting them, letting them die after they were born, because this man, the son was more preferred than the boy, than the girl. Consequence, 20 years ago, 200 million more men than women. 20 years ago, our military was going, they've got to do something with those 200 million men. War is the best option to get them out of circulation. Another option, which China has hit upon, apparently, is sending those young men all over the world, and they're paving roads and building soccer stadiums and doing all kinds of infrastructure, mining, and so they're taking all those men and getting them out of the circulation and putting them in work camps all over the world. Polygamy, in a practical level, is the seeds of destruction for the family, and for all of society. But the big reason that polygamy is wrong is theological. It says something. It is a message, because marriage has been made to reflect the unity, the exclusivity, the permanence of the Trinity itself, and also made to reflect the relationship that Israel has with God and the relationship that Christ has with the church. And polygamy communicates, says, expresses in our humanity, there is no equality or, person, or personal dignity within the Godhead, only functionality, utilitarianism, and selfishness, because that is what polygamy represents. Polygamy says that God's marriage to Israel and Christ's marriage to the church is not one of uniqueness and exclusive love. Polygamy says that God weds, he joins himself to us to satisfy himself, to enrich himself. He weds for power, for pleasure, for self-gratification, that God is a self-absorbed user of others who objectifies and does not value. 
And he is not that kind of God. Our bodies with their sexuality are meant to tell a story, God's story. God has created us, male and female, and designed, not in every case, but God has designed that when we marry, it be one man and one woman, because that tells a story, the story of God and his relationship with us. Polygamy is wrong because it is a lie. I wonder about this next statement, but I wonder if today, because we would say, hear a sermon like this and go, man, that's about the Muslims, that's about the Mormons. But could it be true to say polygamy is pornography with real people? Pornography is about virtual. Polygamy is about actual. Don't they say the same thing? I'll close us in prayer. God, I'm so grateful and awed and humbled at the thought that you would love me and that you love us. Not compatible and not convenient, but you love us. Not for your own satisfaction or pleasure, but because you are love and you love us. Thank you, God, that you have made us to reflect the story of your love and how we love one another. Love within the body of Christ, whether we marry or not, and love as spouses that would reflect Christ and his love for the church, which is exclusive, honoring, permanent, full of value and respect. Thank you, God. We will never improve on your creation design. And I pray, God, that we would accept what you have said through your actions, what you have said through creation, and that we would have eyes and hearts open, God, to see what you have said through what you have done. And we not become so legalistic that if we can't find a verse, then we say that you, have don't, that you don't care. You have said so much more, God. We know that your word is the final authority, and we never want to go beyond that. But I pray, God, that we would not silence you when it comes to what you have said in your creation. In Jesus' name, amen.